0: Bibles, and you're joining me in Matthew chapter 6, if you would, please. The ushers have sermon notes. In case you came in and did not get them, they'll walk through the auditorium and hand those to those of you who would indicate by just raising a hand. See you later, guys. Bye. Okay. The, if you need sermon notes to follow along a little bit better, just raise your hand to hand that to you. And uh, we're going to continue in a series that we started a few weeks ago, and then we broke because we had revival meetings. But we're going back to a series that's dealing with the Lord's Prayer. When we come to this, I was thinking about a story that I read in the uh, book that's written by David McCullough that's about... Teddy Roosevelt. In it he, account, he gives an account how when Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt was a little boy he called his mom Middy instead of mom that Middy realized that he had a problem going to church. They had a church that they attended regularly. They were members of the family was the Roosevelt family for a period of time but young Teddy Roosevelt created such a sensation and such, a, such an opposition to going, to going to the church services to walking into the building because he was afraid of something. Well actually he knew what it was. They couldn't figure it out. He had heard the preacher preach a sermon that dealt with, in John chapter 2, I think it is, where he talks about the zeal of the Lord hath eaten him up. Okay, the zeal for the Lord of the house. And he realized that, or Teddy Roosevelt put together that, said, somewhere in the Lord's house there's a thing called zeal that eats people up. And so he took that little simple passage and he re- thought that there was some zeal monster inside the church that kept him from wanting to ever go inside the church. It is so easy for somebody, young or even young in the Lord, to hear something and twist the word of God. That's exactly what happened in Matthew chapter 6, is it not? When Jesus said, I want you when you pray, pray after this manner. And what did people do with that? Churches have for century, made it a prayer a repetitious, rote prayer, and that's not what Jesus intended. Jesus intended to give instruction on how to pray, not what to pray. So let's read it, and then let's examine a little bit one of the sections here in the text that we're talking about. We read in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us some information where he says... "'Be ye not therefore like unto them.'" That is the hypocrites he's just talked about and the heathens. "'For your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. "'After this manner, therefore, you should pray. "'Our Father, which art in heaven,' Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done uh, on, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. Now, we're dealing with one phrase, one phrase in the course of what we've been studying, but that one phrase, before we get to it, let's remember the big picture here. The big picture that Jesus is, give, is instructing his disciples is I want you to pray. I want all of you to pray. And so in this sermon, he's encouraging everybody who's listening to him, of those thousands that are on the mountainside, you people need to be involved in prayer. Let's take it a step further. He wants to encourage his disciples to pray effectively. It is one thing to pray, but it's another thing to pray effectively where you move the mountains, where you have God answer those prayers, where God is pleased with the way you're praying, that you're communicating with God, that you, f- that you sense and you feel that your prayers aren't bouncing off the roof, but you are in actual conversation with God. And so he gives instruction on how to do that. Now, we've talked about some of the things that Jesus has talked about. How do we improve our prayer life? First of all, you need to have a retreat. That is time alone. Where he's talked about it earlier, he says, when you pray in verse 6, when you pray, enter into your closet when you have shut the door, pray to your father, which is in secret. The idea is you need to, on a regular basis, get alone with God. Wherever that place is, whatever that time is, that's your choice. But make a spot, make a place, make a time where you have set aside so many minutes during the course of the day, whatever it may be. For some, it's 5, 10, 15, 20, a half hour. Whatever it may be, you set aside a place and a time where this is your God appointment, where you're having time with him. Number two, we said that when you pray, there needs to be a relationship. It starts off, our Father, our Abba. There is a time where you have come to know Jesus as your Savior. Like these four young men shared, one at four, one at whatever the ages, I forget they all were now, but one at ten that where they prayed, they asked Christ to become their savior. They were birthed into God's family, as and Pastor Tony said, they were adopted into God's family. They were born again. Whatever terminology you're going to use, the Bible uses multiple terms: saved, uh, born again, converted. Whatever you call it, in those terminologies, it's that moment where you accept Christ, become part of God's family. You need that relationship. Then you can talk with Him, our Abba, our Dad, our Father in heaven. You need a relationship. You need a retreat. You need. To also incorporate into your prayer life a reverence. Not coming flippantly, not coming demandingly, but coming with reverence seen in, hallowed be thy name. That idea of, I want to glorify your name, we're talking about whatever we pray here. When we pray, it's not about us, it's about glorifying God. We're praising him, we're honoring him, we're magnifying, we're lifting up his name. But not only showing in the praising of God's name, but we also talked about pursuing his will. Glorifying God, reverence for God by saying, hallowed be your, your name, thy kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, we've already talked about thy kingdom come. All the different aspects that we can be talking about. Tonight, I feel like a child who's standing by the seashore with one bucket who thinks in his mind he can drain the ocean of of something that is so big and massive. This phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is such a magnificent, flowing, ocean-wide ministry. One little bucket isn't going to do it. One short message, but let's take a shot at it. Let's try to draw something from it that Jesus is instructing his disciples and to me it was profound in studying. Absolutely profound and absolutely challenging to the core. Let me bring four different observations from this phrase. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven says to me this. It says number one God is sovereignly in control of and he is served in heaven. Everything that goes on in heaven he's in charge. In heaven they are serving him to the fullest their abilities. What we're saying is very simple. God is absolutely in charge in heaven. That's what Jesus says. He says, your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. In other words, whatever God wants, whatever he wishes, whatever God thinks, whatever he expresses, there's going to be peoples in heaven, creatures in heaven that are going to run to do his bidding. They won't hesitate. They serve him without question. Those in heaven, he is their focus, and that's the way it should be. And in heaven, it is having that. In fact, let's talk a little bit about the angels who are in heaven the creatures who are serving him. We find in scriptures that the angels are described as those that who excel in strength, far beyond our abilities, mentally, physically. The angels excel above us but they do his commandments. Though they are more powerful, more brilliant, more more speedy, more agile, their whole goal in their existence is to fulfill their purpose for being created. To bring glory to the Father. So they serve him. They speedily do do his will. They hearken unto the Father in heaven. In fact, in Hebrews, we read this, are they not ministering spirits? They minister to do God's will. One of that, those things is they're sent forth to minister to us who are God's children to help us and God uses them. You may call them guardian angels. You may see them in scripture as angels who come to the rescue at time of believers, who bring answered prayers, who provide some protection. You have all these different aspects of the angels taking place, but their whole goal is thy will be done in heaven. And so Jesus is making comment that these angels do that. Now we can again go back in scripture. We can find many accounts where the angels did God God's bidding when he said, Take this message to Daniel. When he said, Protect the Israelites, and 185,000 of the enemy were destroyed. Where in scriptures we read about the accounts that they were more than willing to come and take Jesus off the cross, they wanted to serve him so badly. We read about how the angels in heaven that they are worshiping and their phrase song is, Holy, Holy. Holy, that they just resoundingly talk about. They come to the rescue of Peter in the book of Acts. We read how they protected the body of Moses when Satan wanted to take it and use it for his own compromising and confusing purposes. They carry out God's judgment in the future. We just spent a whole study of months in the book of Revelation where the angels are doing God's bidding in that regard. The angels. They are doing God's will at all times. They do it willingly. They do it without condition. They are are creatures that understand and know God, who He is, who see Him, and therefore they are totally devoted to doing His will. Now we can take a lot of lessons from the angels. They watch us. They learn from us, we read in Corinthians, that they observe how we interact with God in prayer and and they're, they're amazed by that whole act of grace. Well, we could take a lesson from those fellow creatures that their desire is to do the will of the Father, and they do it. In heaven, God's will is being done completely. He is totally in charge. He is sovereignly in control, and it's served in heaven. That's where we get the phrase. That's why we get the phrase, your will be done in earth as it is being done in heaven. God's will is being done in heaven. That is a given. Let me make another observation. Okay? Another observation is this. God also has an active and ongoing concern for mankind. Okay? He has a will for us. He has a will in heaven, but he also has a will for earth. He has a desire. What I mean by that is this. God just didn't create and let things go. There is a, there is a renewal of a form of theology. It's called deism. The idea is that God is creator. They acknowledge God created. But the idea is God created and then he got busy doing something else. Or he created and said, okay, mankind, you are just so wonderful and so brilliant and so intelligent. You can just handle this earth by yourself. I'm just going to stand back and do nothing. And you guys just run with the creation I have given you. And you guys will make a really glorious earth. (laughs) Has it been working? Okay. Even by their own theology, does it show that there's a disaster in the making? Absolutely. But Deists come to the conclusion that God may be there. He is a being, but he is distant. He is not involved. That is not true by what Jesus said. Jesus said when we pray, we should acknowledge this thought. That when we talk to God, we say, Your will be done on earth as your will is being done in in heaven. In other words, God has a will for what happens on earth. God has a plan. God has some intentions, some desires for how things should be done on planet earth. How you should live. How we should worship. How we should act. How we should be involved with all of the one another. And so God has, after generations, an ongoing concern. He is not like those children, like we were at one time. Remember how when we were little kids or when we had little kids or you who are raising them, do you remember how it happens that you give them that wonderful toy that you thought would be their most, most ex- the toy that they'd be the most excited about at Christmas time? And what happens? What do they end up playing with more than that toy? The box. Okay, the box number one. But within a few days after that, they're bored with either thing. Okay, why is that? Because we are like that. We kind of, everything looking for new and novel. And so even like little kids, we who are older kids, we kind of get bored with some things. Things that are exciting and dramatic and they're kind of cool for a while. But then we... Move off and move on to something else. And so we have that sometimes. We think that's the way God is. That is not the way God is. God is very concerned about our lives. He is very concerned about our society. He is very concerned about our church family. He's very concerned about you and your family. And so Jesus makes makes that note. He says, God has a will. And so he's saying, when you pray, you pray for God's will to be done. Now, what's implied is well, number three. Number three, God's will is not always done on earth. He is making a contrast in this prayer. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's will is being done in heaven, well, let's let's understand the facts of Scripture. It is not being done on earth. Not everything that happens on earth is following the will of God. Well, we know that. We understand that God is in sovereign control but does that mean that everything that God desires is still being done? This is a real big theological issue. This is a problem for some people that they have cut down a whole lot of trees. They are taking up a whole lot of cloud space on the net to answer this question about God and his control and his sovereignty. Let's keep it very simple. And let's give definition of, here of what we mean by God is sovereignly in control, but at the same time God that, that God's will is not always being done on earth. Let me show you what I mean by that. It is this. God's will can be divided into two categories. We could define it this way. There is the decrees of God, and there are the desires of God. They are both his will. And I'm going to show you in scriptures where he calls this his will. And sometimes he's referring to decrees. Things that he has said, this will happen. And nothing you do or I do is going to change it. Sometimes he has said, this is my will. But it's up to you whether or not you will let it be done in your life, where you have a choice. And yet he is sovereign in both these cases. He is sovereign in that he has decreed certain things, including events that are destined to happen. Can you think of some events that are destined to happen in our future yet? The rapture? Okay. How about the whole end time scope of things? Is there going to be the 666? Is there going to be an antichrist? Is there going to be the worst time in future history? Yeah, what's going to happen? There is something that's been decreed. Unless he intervenes, what will every one of us experience? It is appointed unto man once to die. Okay, And then after that, the judgment. These are decrees. They are decrees that God says there's going to be a judgment. We're going to face that. We're not going to get, get away from it. Also throughout the Bible, you see that there was predicted events. It was decreed. That there would be two thieves on the cross. It was predicted that this would take place. It was decreed that there would be one who would, who would turn against Jesus, betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Those are decrees. Included in this is the point that God is choosing certain events and certain, uh, certain happenings that they are going to happen. I'll give you one in your life. God has decreed for every one of us who is born again That we will, he predestinated us to this to happen in our lives, that we will become conformed to the image of his son. It will happen. It will happen. Now that process and that conformity, some of that depends upon you. How fast that happens. But the reality is, in the end, are we all going to be conformed to Christ? Yes, we are, according to Romans chapter 8. It's decreed. By his foreknowledge, we are predestinated and it will be complete when we are, do you remember when? When we're taken to heaven. And our sin nature is removed and we are fully glorified. We will fully be conformed to his image. Now, some of us, in the meantime, we're balking at that. We're slowing that process down. But it is decreed. It will happen eventually in our lives. There is the idea here, the decrees of God is man cannot stop them. Man will not. I'll give you the one that man is going to be most opposed to. When they see Jesus Christ coming from heaven to take over planet earth, what do mankind, what will mankind do? What will they do to stop Jesus? They will fire weapons upon him. The book of Revelation says they'll even open up their weapons against Jesus. They're not going to win. Okay, they're not going to win. He will open up what? His mouth and destroy them. Okay, that's decreed. That's not, it's not going to change. It's not going to alter. Now, at the same time, we can go through scriptures and we can see this. Where it says, he has done whatsoever he pleased. We believe there's, there's a sovereignty with God. That God controls as much, well, let's rephrase that. God controls everything he chooses to control. So does he control a lot of events in history? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, he does whatever he pleases. Could he, could he do anything he wanted with our lives? Yes, he's sovereign. He's totally powerful. And so we read that, that God is one who exercises his will in many ways. Babylon he told Jeremiah give this message out he says he is going to do such and such to babylon babylon's attacking jerusalem at the time i will i will bring babylon as a form of spanking the jewish peoples destroying israel but i'm going to destroy babylon it was decreed it was going to happen and so it came to pass he talks about surely as i have thought so shall it come to pass as i have purposed so shall it stand these include the decrees of God. This is how God is sovereignly in control, that we cannot say to him, hey, you who made me, you can't do this. You can't do that in my life. No, not at all. Has not the potter the power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and one vessel to dishonor? In other words, can God give some people fully good health and other people not so good health? He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to do. We understand that. We recognize that God is fully in control in that regard. He created us so that we would give him full control of our lives. That is God's control his sovereignty, he has decrees. And so he says, I've decreed this, every knee, every knee will one day bow before me. Everyone will. Saved and unsaved, they will bow. And that is true. That's decreed. Everyone will in the future bow and recognize Jesus as God. And for some people, it'll be too late when they do. They'll be standing before the great white throne judgment. And it'll be a day of damnation for them because they have refused his lordship now. Now, And they have rejected him, but one day they'll admit, You are the Lord. So it's better we admit it in this lifetime now than we are forced to do it when we are damned. So we say, Okay, God has decrees. There is also this aspect in Scripture God has a will that is not forced upon people, it is His will. That certain things happen, but he doesn't force people. Let me, let me show you what I mean. It includes all that he wants to be done. It allows for free will amongst mankind to do as they choose to some degree. You have free will. You as a believer can make a lot of choices, but God will stop you when you go too far. God will discipline you. God will direct you. We understand this as will. There are God's wishes. What I mean by that is it's his will. It's his desires. It's his wish that you do certain things, but he doesn't force you. And the outcome is going to be based upon how you respond to his will. I'll give you an illustration of this from Scripture. It happened in the Garden of Eden. Was it God's will that Adam and Eve not eat of that fruit? It was God's will. Who was given the choice? Adam and Eve. So though God willed that they didn't eat, did he allow them to make the final choice? Yeah, and we all pay for it. Is this the will of God, that people obey the Ten Commandments? That's absolutely God's will. It's clear. He wrote it down. It was in his own handwriting. The Ten Commandments. Did he allow people free choice in obeying them or not? Focus. Did he allow them? The answer is yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. It was... Up to them to choose. I'll give you another chance, another option. Jesus is speaking in Jerusalem and he says, I am come to you and I'm offering you eternal life, but you will not come unto me that you might have life. He is preaching this in the, in the center of Jerusalem during the feast of, I forget which one it's going to be, so I won't even guess. It's one of the different feasts that he is doing. And he says, You have chosen not to come unto me. Was it his desire that they come? Yes. But they had opportunity, they have choice. When Jesus is looking over Jerusalem that last week, when he is spending in Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would, he said, I would have gathered you as a hen does her chicks, but you would not. It was my desire to be your Messiah. It was my desire, my presentation, but you had a choice. And I didn't force myself on you, I gave you a choice. It's my will, but you had a choice. And so then they have the consequences of their choice. Is it God's will that everybody get born again? Well, yeah. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does he force everyone to get saved? No. No, not at all. Let's take it a step further. Who will, it says in Scripture, have how many people to be saved? All people, but it's your choice. So it's God's will for everyone to get saved, but not everyone will. He wants them to make that personal choice. In fact, I'll take it a step further. You're born again. You've accepted Christ. This is God's will for your life. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from immorality. He goes on, that every one of you should know how to possess this physical body in honor. Is it God's will that you live a godly, pure life? That's God's will for you. Does it always happen? Not in every Christian's life. So we can talk about the perfect will of God being conformed that we present our bodies, a living sacrifice, which is the will of God for you. The holy, good, and holy, acceptable will of God. And yet it doesn't always happen. So in scriptures we find that this is a truism. That even though God is sovereign in heaven, that God is totally in control, God's will is not being done totally on earth. There are people who are rejecting his will for their life, but not getting born again. There are even born again people who are rejecting his will for their life by by a lack of purity, by a lack of surrender, by a lack of sacrifice, by a lack of obedience. And so we make the statement that God is concerned about what's happening on earth. God has a plan, but not everybody is fitting into the plan on earth, whereas in heaven... Everything he desires is being done. It's not happening on earth. So Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way. Pray that your will be done on earth as it, is, as it is being done in heaven. He is making it very clear. Now, I'm going to speak a little bit that some of you are going to think I'm going into heresy when I make the next comments here in a few moments. But listen closely. What that means is this. Not all that happens on earth is the will of God. Not, we're saying that God's will is not being done entirely on earth because he's leaving choice. It also means that not everything that happens is, well, that's the will of God. What I mean by that is this. Okay? Are there a lot of bad things taking place on planet earth right now? Oh, let's list a few of them. Okay? Are there bad things where there's starvation, there's pollution? Are there people abusing the stewardship of planet earth? Sure. Are there people... Taking food that has been given and they greedily take the supplies that are given to help people who are starving and they make money out of it? Yeah. Are there bad things that happen like storms? Yeah. Are there bad things that happen like sickness? Yeah, absolutely. Are there bad things that happen to our country? Yeah, absolutely. Are there bad things that happen to the police? Yes. Is it the will of God just because it happens? See, sometimes we get to the point where we say, well, God is in, so- He's in sovereign control. We believe that. I believe that, amen? God is in sovereign control. And then we jump to the logical conclusion that isn't biblical, but some will make it a logical statement. Therefore, everything that happens must be God's will. Really? Is it God's will that people be greedy and literally take the food out of mouths of starving people? Is that God's will? Or is that man's sinful choice? Is it God's will? Because it happened, he was aware of it. I don't question that. I don't question his knowledge. He was aware of of 9-11. But was it his will that people murder other people? That doesn't reconcile in Scripture with me. That God wills that to happen. It doesn't reconcile that some of our Supreme Court rulings are the will of God. I understand he's aware of it. But does that mean he promoted it? He encouraged it, his will. I rethink of the story of Job. Did somebody other than God take life? The answer is yes. Who took the life of all of Job's kids? It was Satan. Who destroyed all of his herds? It was Satan. Who took away all of his prosperity? It was Satan. Now, did God know it was going to happen? Yes, but was that God's will that it happened? You can't say that. You can't say that God encouraged it, that God wanted it. Just because that it happened, just because there's an allowance, doesn't mean it's the will of God. So we go on, we can say, okay, what about warfare? Does God want genocide to happen? Does God want people to die? He is not willing that any should perish say so to me it makes a lot of sense what jesus is praying when we deal with some of these issues and we make it some really really serious stuff because if we come to the conclusion that everything that takes place is therefore the will of god then why bother praying jesus says no that's not the case jesus says when he is dealing with that most most her most difficult theological discussion why does evil why does god allow evil it happens don't understand all the wise, but I understand according to scriptures, it happens. And Jesus is saying to believers, listen, you and I should be praying. Why? Because God's will is being done in heaven. And we should be praying that his will is done on earth to stop some of the evil and bad things that are happening. Our prayers should be powerful enough. We should be active enough to resist some of what's going on. In other words, let's ask these questions to prove our point. Did, does God will people to sin? No. No. Is it God's will for people to attack other people? No. Is it God, always God's will for people to suffer as they do? Not always. Not always. In some cases, yes, he allows it. But in other cases, it is Satan doing the attacking. Let's do this one. Are all tragedies and devastations that people face the will of God? No. No, because it brings us to this thought. In James chapter 1, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither what? Tempts he any man. When we choose to sin, it is not God's will. But but then all that problems that come with it. It's not God's will. It is not God's will for somebody to steal and get caught and lose their job. It is not God's will for somebody to get into drugs. It is not God's will for somebody to get into premarital sex. It is not God's will for somebody to become disobedient or unfaithful in their marriage. Or disobedient to their parents. That's not God's will. It isn't. God does not tempt anybody to do evil, to do sin. Now, does he know that that might happen in their life? Is he aware of what choices they will make? The answer is yes, but that doesn't mean it's his will. It's your choice or my choice or that individual's choice. And all the problems that come with it are not the will of God. They are consequences to somebody's bad choices. So what is Jesus saying? Use prayer to resist some of that temptation. And to avoid some of that garbage that comes along with it. Bad things happen. Why? Because we're in a spiritual war, people. Jesus is more aware of it than we are. That's why he's talking this way. He is saying that there's warfare, there's demonic attacks. He knows that we will make bad choices that create some of the big problems that we face. Is there health issues that come because of our choices? That we could have controlled? Yes, Are there financial problems that come because of choices we have made? Yes. Well, it happened in my life, it must be God's will. That fatalism is not biblical. There's a responsibility that we need to take and an ownership of some of the consequences we face. And so God is making it very clear that even times others choose to do bad things and we suffer the consequences. That happened to a bunch of you. A bunch of you lost in 2008. You lost a whole bunch of finances in savings. Why? Because of some other greedy individuals who were playing around with the stock markets and different mortgages that they were padding their own pocketbook and it trickled down and it set the whole economy into a collapsed time. Why did that happen? Oh, it must have been the will of God that we all lost that money. Really? It was God's will that those men became greedy and materialistic and they tried to, to corrupt the system? We are in a battle that Satan can destroy society, hope in God, and get God to be blamed for things that he ought not to be blamed for. So you and I need to understand this, that evil that is left unchecked will get worse and worse. That's a fact. We also understand that governments and societies choose to oppose righteousness. That's a fact, Right? Don't we understand that Satan is involved with governments from the very beginning, trying to get them to resist the righteousness, even from the very beginning when government came on planet Earth? What do they build in order to become like God himself? We will build a huge tower, okay, as a society, as a group, as a government group. After God said that you were supposed to do what, people? Scatter throughout all the Earth. The government said what? Stay in one spot. And build this one world government where everybody speaks the same thing, everybody's building, and we will become as gods. And God intervened with the, with, the, um, with the provision of different languages, the Babel. So we have this truth that people are resisting what God wants. And we as Christians, we have the tool by which we resist and we help his will to be done on earth. What that means is this. We need to understand what Jesus is asking us to do is get involved with warfare. Warfare of prayer. When you pray, you pray, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. You are being totally obeyed in heaven. You are being totally, uh, people are totally obedient to you in heaven. It's not taking place on planet earth, but we're supposed to be praying that it would take place. Starting where? Where does this prayer start with? Me. Me. And then in me or you, where does it spread out to? Our family. And then where does it spread out to? Our church. And then where does it spread out to? Our community. And to pray that God, please, help there to be righteousness. Help there to be an obedience to your will, even the way people do business. Even the way when it comes to health issues. Help us to resist even some of the physical health attacks. And I'm not saying all of them are. Please don't don't get silly with what I'm saying. We understand that sometimes God allows, and it is his will for disease. We also know that sometimes it is not from God. It is coming from Satan, like in Paul's case, where he's buffeted by Satan. Can God use it either way? The answer is yes. But at the same time, we need to understand that we're in a warfare. We're in a battle. We have got something to do here When it comes to helping to bring about the will of God in your family, in your life, in your church, in your society. And it's the via prayer. So let's make some observations here in conclusion. You and I must seek to know the will of God. How can we pray thy will be done if we don't know what it is? for our workplace, for our church, for our own lives. So in order to pray thy will be done, you and I have got to find out what it is. We've got to study the word. We've got to be open to the word. We've got to be understanding it. What is God's will for my family? What is God's will for my finances? What is God's will for for the way we work? What is God's will for how we do church? What is God's will for government? If we're going to pray this way, that God's will be done on earth, we better know what we're praying about. We need to study scriptures. Number two, it means this. We must be willing to personally surrender to God's will. Thy will be done as in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven means that's starting with me. That I want to be totally yielded and totally obedient like the angels are. That I want to do that, that unconditional, that quickly running to wherever you want. I want to be that type of a person. I want to be an individual who is saying to the potter, you do whatever you want. I'm the clay. One individual put it this way. When he was talking about this whole idea of thy will be done uh, in, in my own life. He read and gave an illustration. I want to read it to you because I could not relay it as well as he does. Philip Keller visited Pakistan and tells of an interesting experience that he had. He says that he read from Jeremiah about the idea that the potter's house, that to Jeremiah, I will show you to understand my words if you go to the potter's house. So that day he decided to go and visit a potter. Somebody in Pakistan that was dealing with that old method of dealing with clay and pottery. In sincerity and in earnest, I asked the old master craftsman to show me every step in the creation of a masterpiece. On his shelf stood gleaming goblets, lovely vases, exquisite bowls of breathtaking Beauty. Then, crooking a bony finger toward me, he led me way in the back of his shop. There was a small, dark, closed shed way behind. When he opened its rickety door, a repulsive, overpowering stench of decaying matter engulfed me. For a moment, I stepped back from the edge of the gaping dark pit in the floor of the shed. This is where the work begins, he said. Kneeling down beside the black, nauseating hole, with his long, thin arm, he reached down into the darkness. His slim, skilled fingers felt around amid the lumpy clay, searching for a fragment of material exactly suited to his task. I add special kinds of grass to the mud. As it rots and decays, its organic contact increases the colloidal quality of the clay. Then it sticks together better. Finally, his knowing hands brought up a lump of dark mud from the horrible pit where the clay had been tramped and mixed for hours by his hard, bony feet. With tremendous impact, the first verses of Psalm 40 came to my heart. In a new and suddenly illuminating way, I saw what the psalmist meant when he wrote long ago. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. As carefully as the potter had selected his clay, so God used special care in choosing me. The great slab of granite, carved from the rough rock of the high Hindu Kush mountains behind his home, whirled quietly. It was operated by very crude, tread-like devices that was moved by his feet, much like our antique sewing machines. And as the stone gathered, the stone gathered momentum, I was taken a memory to Jeremiah 18. Then I went down into the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a great work on the wheels." But what stood out most before my mind at this point was the fact that beside the potter's stool on either side of him were two basins of water. Not once did he touch the clay, now spinning swiftly in the center of the wheel, without first dipping his hands in the water. As he began to apply his delicate fingers and smooth palms to the mound of mud, it was always through the medium of the moisture of his hands." As it was fa- and it was fascinating to see how swiftly but surely the clay responded to the pressure applied to it through those moistened hands. Silently, smoothly, the form of a graceful goblet began to take shape beneath those hands. The water was the medium through which the master's craftsman will, uh, craftsman's will and wishes were being transmitted to the clay. His will was actually being done on earth. For me, this was the most moving demonstration of the simple yet mysterious truth that my father's will and wishes are expressed and transmitted to me through the water of his word. Suddenly, as I watched, to my utter astonishment, I saw the stone stone stop. Why? I looked closely. The potter removed a small particle of grit from the goblet. Then, just as suddenly, the stone started spinning, and then it stopped again. He removed another hard object. Suddenly, he sped up the stone, and then he stopped it again. He pointed rather angrily to a deep, ragged gouge that cut and scarred the goblet's side. It was ruined beyond repair. In dismay, he crushed it beneath his hands. Jeremiah says, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Seldom has any lesson come home to me with such tremendous clarity and force. Why was this rare, beautiful masterpiece ruined in the master's hands? Because he had run into resistance. It was like a thunderclap of truth bursting upon me. Why is my father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, brought to nothing again and again? Why, despite his best efforts and endless patience with human beings, do we end up with disaster? Simply because we resist his will. The sobering, searching, searing question I had asked myself in the humble surroundings of that simple potter's shed was this. Am I going to become a piece of fine china or just a finger bowl? Is my life going to be a gorgeous goblet, fit to hold the fine wine of God's very life from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or am I going to be just a crude finger bowl in which passerbys will dabble their fingers briefly and then pass on and forget all about me? It was one of those most solemn moments in all of my spiritual experiences. Father, thy will be done in earth, in this clay, as it is done in heaven. You and I need to surrender. Third of all, we need to pray that his will be done. We need to pray that it's done in my life, our church, the lives of your family, in our community, in the souls and the hearts of others around us. When we come to that phrase, thy will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven, what a poignant, what a tremendously filled passage with theological truths that say to us, we need to pray with surrendered hearts. Now one of the reasons we need to do that is because of what Christ has done for us how Christ has given his life. In a few minutes we're going to celebrate communion. I'm going to invite you to stay and join with us to celebrate communion. If you choose not to, that's your choice. That is up to you. You may have other obligations. You may say that you're not familiar with how we do communion, you would choose to do to leave. You're welcome to do that. We're going to sing another song to prepare our hearts. We're going to get our children back in here and ask them who are born again and who have followed the Lord to the best of their abilities to join with us as we get ready for communion. Let's sing this song. About what Christ has done and how we are going to give him our full hearts.